Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at ended. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today joining me here, I have got the amazing Jane Hutton. Thank you for joining me, Jane. My pleasure. Now, Jane lives and works in the hinterland of the beautiful Sunshine Coast here in Queensland. She is a qualified as a mental health social worker and her work has been largely influenced by narrative therapy for the past 35 years. For the past 26 years, Jane has had her own practice and now spends two days working from her office and one day a week doing equine-assisted narrative therapy in partnership with her daughter, Chloe. For the past year, she has also been involved in the Sunshine Coast Eating Disorders Trial and seen a number of young people at Headspace for this project. You're pretty incredible, aren't you? All the things that you do. Well, sometimes it's a juggling act, but uh, all of it I love. You, know, you juggle it very, very, very well, and I lo- I no, I I really, really admire the work that you do, and um, I think some of it is really, really incredible because of the way that you combine different different therapies, and I think that then gets to people at a level that, say, sitting in a office, psychologist office sometimes doesn't doesn't get to. So, on that note. Um, I mean, I've seen firsthand the difference that it can make to people, the work that you do, um, to people who are in the midst of an eating disorder. What led you to doing the work that you do? Have you had any personal experience with an eating disorder? I think that every young woman growing up in the Western world has an experience of what it's like to be under pressure from these ideas. And I was thinking about this this morning um, because I think I've – I worked with teenagers um, and I worked for an adolescent counselling service for about 10 years so I saw a lot of young women um, with eating disorders and it had me reflecting on my own growing up as a teenager and I remember those years of that pressure of like you shouldn't eat so much, you need to lose weight, you need to exercise, you need to go for long periods of time without eating. So I think that those ideas and some of those practices Mm. um, were certainly part of my life as a teenager. I would never have been identified as having an eating disorder and um, I never thought of myself as having an eating disorder. But I think as a feminist, um, you know, we're aware that these ideas about how we're meant to be as women, these ideas about appearance um, are incredibly influential and I think it's a day-to-day 
um, process of refusing them. And, um, and so I guess I'm interested in those ideas of how we stand against some of the norms that are unhelpful. So I've, I've had a passion for standing against normality, I guess. And the, so this is maybe a little part of that. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's beautiful. And you're right. Like I think any woman, um, well, most women, I wouldn't want to say any, but most women have been touched in some way by, by those pressures. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, in today's society, it's even more so. There wouldn't be anyone who's born to this sort of generation that wouldn't be uh, untouched by that. Unfortunately, it's becoming um, more so with younger and younger um, yes. individuals. And I also think that with women of my age, as you go through menopause and your body changes again, so at each point in our lives mm-hmm. as women, each de- developmental stage, you think about it, was your child and then your body changes, you've got no control over it. Um, when you become a mother, your body changes and you've got no control over it. Uh, then when you hit a certain age, I think they call it, <laughs> Your body changes and you have no control over it. Yeah. And I think that and that is in the context of a world that demands um, that you have total control over your body. Yeah, yeah so, you're right. Yeah. I remember when my mum went through menopause, she found it really, really difficult because there's just such dramatic changes going on. And I, I do think that menopause needs to be talked about more. Hmm. You know, it, it, similarly to what we're trying to do with eating disorder, it needs to be brought out of the shadows so that it's not such a... People need to understand that what they're going through is normal. Yeah. Um, and it's not anything to be ashamed of. It's actually a completely normal, natural process that you're going through. Yeah, and there will be changes to your body and they won't fit with the requirements. The requirements, <laughs> I The requirements of how women are meant to be within our culture. But, I mean, who who sets those requirements? Like, Ex- what, where do those requirements even come from? And, and who says that we have to fit in to those requirements? Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's the questioning of those requirements that I guess is my passion in yeah. all of the work that I do, including the eating disorders. Yeah, I love that. Now, the work of both David Epstein and Michael White has influenced your approach. So tell me more about that. Um, I think when I, as a young social worker, Initially, I was working with people with um, with health problems and particularly epilepsy. I was working with young people with epilepsy who described themselves as epileptics. And that really distressed me. I thought, this has taken over their whole sense of identity. This illness has taken over their identity. And so I started working with them to separate the epilepsy from them. And then I went to my first Michael White training and he externalised all problems. And so he spoke about you know, the person is the person and the problem is the problem and we're interested in the relationship between them and what the person's got to put up against the problem. Oh, that's that's what I do. And then I started and he also began to speak about the cultural context, that any problem has a cultural context mm. and so that's part of it being external to the person. So there's not something wrong with this person but this person's life exists in a context and there's something about their relationship with that context that's getting them into trouble. He did some early work around anorexia and eating disorders and then so did David Epstein. David Epstein, I think when I connected with his work, it was particularly around uh, the eating disorder stuff and so he was the first person to speak about that particular issue uh, and the importance of insider knowledge from my experience. Yeah. And so all of narrative therapy, which I think both, as in probably has come to be the way that um, David and Michael's work has probably been most commonly known, involves the person being the expert in their own life 
And so that concept of insider knowledge is crucial. So rather than me being an expert in someone's life, it positions me in a way to work with them to bring forward their skills, their knowledge, their expertise and their experience and how they're making sense of their experience rather than being an expert on them or what they should do or me deciding what the problem is and then telling them how to fix it. I really connected with this idea of collaborating with people and then being experts in their own life. I think that's so important because I think all too often you go into therapy uh, and you feel like you're being talked at or talked, you know, talked to. It's like, you know, you need to be a real integral part of that process. Yeah. And to and to be empowered to know, as you say, that you've got everything you need inside of yourself. Yeah. You just need to be helped and guided and your hand held in some respects to know how to utilize it. Yeah. And I also think that there are some there are ways in which people's identity is shaped in their relationship with other people. So there will be relationships um, that uh, people are in that um, are shaping that identity in really helpful ways and then there will be relationships that they're in that are taking them away from that. Now, that might not be relationships with people, might be relationships with ideas, but that's also something. So that it's an interesting concept, that idea that we have everything inside us I actually think that sometimes we need to be looking outside of us. So, like, who do we need on our team? Who can support that part of us that's really important? So where do we get that from and how do we connect with that? Which ideas are we connecting with? And it might not be someone that you've ever met. You know, it might be that someone gains their strength from saying, well, no one in my immediate circle gets this, um, but I heard that podcast and that girl gets this and she would stand where I would stand and I'm going to stand with her. And so there's something about that aspect um, for me of the way that um, David brought forward that insider knowledge and you know, the bite in the hand that Starves book, that sense of connecting up uh, women through each other's stories in the same ways that you're doing here. And I think that's something that I, I feel you know, really passionately about, that people shouldn't have to find it all on their own, stand on their own two feet. I think that that idea of standing on our own two feet has some merit, but I think it's got us into a lot of trouble, individual psychology. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think, I, I guess what I was meaning before was that I know one of the things that Silky said to me, my, my NLP therapist, was she said, you've got it all there, you know, yes. because I, I had been told so often that that wasn't possible and that I didn't, you know, it was just, it was too, I was too far gone for that. And so to, to be really empowered to know that you did have it Yes. And all there inside of you was just was was amazing, and, and that what you have counts. This is mm. this is the important ingredient. Yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed listening to that interview of you. That your interview with Silky that was beautiful, yeah. and it was like mm, I like this. And I think there was also something um, in the interview with Carolyn where you spoke about that notion of, and she spoke so passionately about the idea of like you can recover. There is not something wrong with you. Yes. You know, and that's the other, I think, point of connection is that, of course, you can become other than who you are right now and, you know, you've got what that takes and you can also go out and seek what else do I want to, what do I want to add to that? You know, what, what ideas do I want to look to? Which ideas do I want to not listen to anymore? Yes. You know, you can discern. Absolutely. 
I know that, so I worked with uh, David Epstein's wife, Anne, for many, many years. And that was the first time that mum and I really got an understanding of what this eating disorder was mm. and how it worked and how it shape-shifted. Um, and it was it was really, really transformational for us both. Mm. And I, would, I remembered Anne, she didn't have a computer or anything. <laughs> she had a typewriter. And so she would typewrite letters to me oh. after each session and she would send them in the mail. And they were they were you know meant for me to reflect on, and she had questions and things for me, and I became quite resentful of it at times because I actually had to do some work. <laughs> but I honestly, Jane, up until that point, you know, I'd go to psychology appointments, and yep, okay, that's that, and it's done, and then you walk out of there. But this actually involved me doing some reflection and me inquiring inside of myself as to why why I was doing that particular behaviour or why I was thinking that thought. And what do you think makes narrative therapy so powerful in an eating disorder space? I think one of the things that you're talking about there is that you actually have to ask yourself questions so that it's not a someone trying to persuade you, convince you, yeah. teach you, inform you, but you're invited to reflect on what is your experience of this? What is this doing to you? Um, what is that taking you away from that's important to you? What's your position on that? So you're invited to take a position. So once you've had to take a position and you've had to um, look at something, discern something, uh, that's a much more powerful uh, thing for anybody, for any of us than someone else saying, look, you really need to or, you know, this is really problematic and we need to step away from that. Mm. Um, for you to kind of look at something and say, it's not okay um, for me not to be able to go and have the energy to go dancing with my friends. It's not okay for me to not want to get up in the morning. It's not okay for me to um, be thinking that I might be dead in two years. That's not okay for me. That's not what I want for me. And the other part of it is I, I like the way that narrative therapy um, is interested in the person as the person. So I think eating disorders really disconnect people from their sense of uh, identity and so they strip them. So the only thing that matters is these numbers, um, what the mirror is telling you, what the scales are telling you, um, it's like life gets down to this what we call thin description in narrative therapy. Yeah. As we start to ask questions about um, people's skills or even just interests, their knowledge about something, what matters to them, you know, uh, are their intentions, you know, what's your intention in doing this? Um, what, what matters to you in the world other than? So I will often have conversations with young women that have got nothing to do with eating and nothing to do with eating disorder, but are all about reconnecting them with their preferred identity story. Um, and someone said something to me the other day about it. It's a little bit like, you know, your your brain is kind of just, your, the eating disorder has taken over your brain and um, you've lost all sense of these other things. And they said, when you first asked me, like, you know, what was important to me when I first met you, I was like, oh, I don't know, like nothing. And now I tell you, well, this and this and this and this and this and I'm this kind of person and I'm doing this and I'm... So there's not as much space then 
for the eating disorder to kind of work its evil ways. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting. I did a, um, an exercise that I often do with clients. Um, as I call it the values, values thing where we talk about, right, what are your values? What are your eating disorders values? And I did it with this um, this young woman for the first time and she talked about that what are her values well that the food is healthy and that the food is and 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 really that she was so wrapped up in it that the first thought was right my values around food and and it wasn't until I said well no I want I want to know what you value as a person like is it yeah. honesty is it authenticity do you love to dance do you yeah. What are the things that light you up from the inside, you know? And um, and it's something that she'd become so disconnected from. And I think people people don't don't realise that that's what it does. You become so severed from your emotions yeah. and your values, and you lose yourself in this beast of an illness. Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's a great description. Now you also specialise in equine therapy which is a modality that is recognised around the world as being incredibly transformational for those affected by eating disorders and other mental illnesses as well. Can you please explain to our listeners how that works? Mm, Well, that's exciting. (laughs) It it was funny because I was actually listening to your podcast with Carolyn and when she said, oh, and up the road we had this place, it doesn't do it like, you know, regular equine. It was like, you know, draws on this guy's ideas. And I went, oh, my goodness, she's talking about the ways that we work as well. So um, we use um, some ideas that are informed by Monty Robert, uh, Monty Roberts in the States. And um, his passion was for working with horses in ways that are respectful and that are about um, – building the relationship so that you actually, the horse wants to work with you. In order to do that, you need to be connected to what's going on for you. So the horse recognises your heart rate from 10 metres away, they recognise your muscle tension, and in order to connect with the horse, um, you actually need to learn to manage that. So there's a couple of things in this. For me, there's a couple of levels. One is that sense of, um, I can't think of a better way to learn to breathe, you know, in order to manage anxiety than to breathe for for a horse. When you actually slow your breathing down and a horse slows its pace down immediately, one, you feel heard. Two, you go, oh, I've got this. (laughs) So there's a sense of achievement and a recognition of those skills. People are complicated to communicate with. And sometimes, you know, our communication gets all messed up and you think, I'm trying, I'm doing my best I can, but it's not working. Whereas with a horse, you stand up straight, you take a breath in, you put your shoulders back and the horse goes, oh, okay, so you want me to go a little bit faster or you're asking me to go away from you. They either step away or they'll move a little bit faster. Um, So you have an immediate response, an immediate mirror to what I'm doing in my body actually is a form of communication. So there's skill development. The way that we work is like what what the person is doing has to bring something to the horse. So and all the horses that we work with, they all have their own issues, you might say. Um, so the younger horses might just need some consistency. They might need to learn that, in fact, um, it can't be all about um, love 
you know, because who wants a 300 kilo horse sitting on you? Um, you know, some of it's got to be about respect. Uh, so with some of the older horses, they might have been through something before they've come to us. So they might have been abused, they might have been hurt, they might have just been pushed too hard on the racetrack. And so they actually need to rebuild trust with people. So the horses all need something. So often in counselling, it can be presented as a one-way street. You're coming to me for help. Um, this is a really different process. So the person's going to get something out of this, but they're also here to offer something to this horse. So it's a reciprocal process where people get a, to have a sense of, I have something to offer. Yeah. And so if that's been stripped away from you, like... So important. Yeah, and so important. And so there's a joy in that. So we have parallel, we have the horse's stories are told alongside the, per, the person's story. So this is what this horse needs. This is what we're looking for you to bring to this horse. Um, what's that going to take from you? What sorts of skills are you going to need? And it's a little bit like cheating therapy because in the ring, the most beautiful things happen. So I don't have to ask someone, oh, can you think of a time this week where maybe you stood up to that idea that, um, that you know, really you're not worth anything? Um, and then they have to rack their brains and they have to think of a time and um, I go, so when you did that thing in the ring and the horse responded in that way, what were you bringing to the horse? So that's why I call it cheating therapy because we've got wonderful things that happen right in front of our eyes that we can then ask questions about. Then we can expand on. So what does that mean? What does it say about you as a person that's important to you or about your skills? Or And then we can expand it out. So there's these two levels. One is around identity and I am a person with something to contribute and I am a person who has skills. The other is around actually learning to manage those feelings because, as we know, the anxiety, um, the stress um, and also the sense of being beaten and helpless are so powerful with eating disorders that to step into a really powerful experience of themselves going, oh, I did bring my heart rate down. I brought my heart rate down myself. And I really softened it and the horse responded to it. And I know I did it because you can't lie to a horse. Because <laughs> they just go, no, you're not relaxed. I can tell you're not relaxed and I'm not coming in. So it's, that's a, you know, that sense of its skill development. Yeah. Plus it's around anxiety, and, which is really important. It's so important. And what do you think makes that combination of narrative therapy and the equine therapy so powerful? I think, um, for, and I can't speak a lot about other experiences of um, equine therapy, but I guess I know that in other forms of equine therapy there is an interpretation, um, an external interpretation of what's going on, um, whereas in narrative therapy um, the conversations are of that same ilk. So what was happening for you then? How do you make sense of that? What do you think was happening for the horse? How do you make sense of that? You know, from where we were standing, the horse looked like at that point when you did that, they really relaxed. Was that what you noticed? So the person is still positioned as an expert. We're still looking to develop that preferred identity story of I am more than this series of numbers. Um, and so I think for me that's, it's, that's that combination. It's like what are you bringing to the horse? Because that's 
I think that's different in this way of doing equine therapy. But the narrative therapy is then how do you then link that with your preferred story about you as a person? Yeah, and I think, you know, you're right, having knowing that you've got something to offer. I think so often in my journey I felt like I just was just hopeless. Yeah. And like I had nothing. My life was nothing, you know, there was just nothing more. Um, and I think when you're in that really hopeless state where you do feel like you've just got nothing to offer the world and so then that therefore goes to well, what's the point of me even being here and that can be that really, really dangerous space. So to yeah. to know that, oh gosh, I do have something to offer and to see that actually happen just it must be the most beautiful thing to witness sometimes oh it it just makes my heart sing really (laughs) when we're working with the horses and and for and not just with eating disorders but um i think particularly when you um see that happen with people with eating disorders that's really big yeah and it also requires that people um are feeling a bit robust it's one of the things about they want to have some energy to do this because they want to go in the horse ring, but it's actually quite physically challenging. Um, mm. And so sometimes we have to really moderate what we do, slow it down, um, depending on people's, you know, strength and, yeah. um, you know, what they've got. So, you know, we'll hear people kind of say, you know, I had something to eat before I came because I wanted to have the energy to do this with the horse. Yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic mm. to have that motivating factor. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've also developed this beautiful series of cards, which I have used with clients um, in both support groups and individual coaching sessions. Um, please share with our listeners a little bit, about, bit more about them and what led you to creating them. Uh, well, these are about my passion for the not normal or my passion, I guess, for um, the traps that normality and expectations of normality can get us into. And um, they originated um, when I was trying to get my head around one of the what we call maps of narrative therapy, when Michael White was first talking about the failure map. And um, and I thought this notion of aspiring to fail at something, I thought, oh, this is a very odd notion. This is a very odd notion indeed, until it was – I. I could make the connection around what it was about. So the cards were um, my effort to wrap my head around these ideas. And um, so it's a failure to um, live up to an expectation that has constrained you in some kind of unhelpful way. And so we can then aspire to um, fail to be uh, as interested in um, the demands of um, dominant demands of being a woman. So we can, we can fail at mm. um, being so successful at being thin. You know, there are all kinds of ways that we can fail. But I particularly was attracted to it because um, my daughter Chloe, who I now do the equine-assisted therapy with, um, was a horse when she was younger. And um, so that was quite challenging because this was not normal to be a horse, to walk as a horse, talk as a horse, engage others to want to be a horse. And so I really struggled around this idea of um, trying to get her to comply um, Mm. and what that meant about squashing her as a person. And this was a way that allowed me to think about um, what is it that I value in stepping away from trying to get her to comply. And so... um, 
it starts with, you know, what are you failing at? So what's the expectation that you're failing at? So this process. Um, and it kind of goes through to, okay, so how are you refusing this expectation? How, would, how are you aspiring to fail more at it? And as we stepped into that with Chloe, we were able to kind of go, this is really important to her, so let's support her passion for horses. And um, that's had a good outcome for me. (laughs) (laughs) And for many others. for many others. You know, Chloe went off to university to study equine science. She kind of um, works with me, um, you know, working with the horses. And her knowledge of horses, the particular knowledge of horses that they gave her, came to be something that I was able to value instead of thinking... I need to push her away from that because Mm. it's not normal. So the cards were a way of trying to make these ideas about how norms and expectations capture us, then what they require of us, and then what's the effect of being captured by a norm or an expectation that takes us away from what's important to us and who we really want to be. And then what's the effect of when we step free from that? So these, this um, second kit, the um, Turning Failure Upside Down kit, has been done with um, uh, an artist uh, who previously was a narrative therapist and social worker and then sort of moved into, you know, or moved back to her artwork. And, um, and the images capture. They're beautiful. They're so beautiful. They are. They're really beautiful. So and so much can be written into the images. <laughs> exactly. Like I remember doing a group the first time that I took them to group and I, you know, they'd go around and I said, right, girls, you can choose, you know, choose a couple that, you know, resonate with you. And then we went round and I asked them to talk about why they chose a particular ones, yes. what what drew them to what mm-hmm. called them to pick those out. And, you know, someone could have picked the same card out, you know, two different people, and they would have completely different reasons and interpretations as to why they'd picked it out. And it's such a good thing, I think, too, for people who aren't um, so okay or with sharing yeah. um, because they've got an image to speak to. It's a starting point. Yeah. And so that's so the, these cards can be used for people to understand the ideas or they can be used to have a conversation with someone yeah. who, um, where you can see that some of those norms and expectations um, are having a bit of a push and a shove. Yeah. And, and they can either be used for an entry point to how that's problematic or how that person is refusing them. You know, like some of the little ones where, you know, I'm flat out taking a break. Yeah. You know, the little feet are up, the mouse is kind of like, what are you doing? I'm resting. You know, <laughs> you know what are you taking a break from? You know, all of the, so you, the, you've got a starting point. And so the questions can be as simple or there's some complicated questions on the backs of the cards that you yes. can always go to. Yes. Um, but the questions can be really simple. So sometimes I'll send them home with people so that they can have, you know, what I call therapy in a box. Um or they can just look at the images and see what comes to them from those. Because mm, mm, some really thought-provoking ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been. A, that's been a little bit of a passion, and that's the second. That's the second kind of lot of cards that we did. The ideas and concepts are the same. You know, we had lost normality, and now this time it's like turning failure upside down. Okay, I didn't realise you'd done a, a prior um, one to that. So same same concept but different artists. So Kate Knapp did the first lot okay. and then um, then Gayla's done the second lot. And the first images were probably much more simple um, and that also offered something beautiful. But these ones I love as well, the complexity in these. Yeah. Um, and life is complex. Sure is. 
Now, you are a big believer in the value of lived experience. Why? Uh, that's where the knowledge lies. <laughs> because, and I was thinking, I was thinking on the way down about some of the young women that I'm working with now, and thinking about some of them who were sort of towards the end of our work together, and some of them who were to the beginning. I'm thinking, now how can I get this young woman in with this young woman? <laughs> because there's something about having been through that journey that there's no way that anybody else can know it in the way that you can know it. And that's why as a therapist, my job is to bring that forward and then to share what each of these other women has shared with me with each of these women who I'm now seeing. So for me as a therapist, that's why lived experience is so important. Yeah, I loved your expression on your face when I asked you why. It's like, well, why, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> well, I think that we forget that we get ourselves all mixed up. When we have professional training, we get ourselves all mixed up about where the expertise lies. Mm-hmm. And um, so if we don't pay attention to that huge body of knowledge and skills and experience – because there's very small detailed skills that probably as a therapist in a whole lifetime I will never get my head around. You know, what it takes to, you know, walk up to the counter to order something, what it takes to when you get to the counter not turn around, you know, what it takes to actually kind of then eat what comes to your table. Like these are very small particular skills just around eating. You know, that I'll never understand in the way that someone who's had to do that hundreds and hundreds of times has had to do that yes yeah and do you think that recovery coaches have an important part to play in in the treatment team yeah I actually it's funny because I was thinking about I was was listening to um, your podcast with Carol and I was thinking I think more of mine might need recovery coaches what am I going to do about this because it's very, you know, if someone is coming to see you once a week or sometimes once a fortnight, it's all they get might get to see me. That is a drop in the bucket. There's no way if you think about every battle that happens, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day with people, um, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. And just there's so much for us to talk about, reflect on, that lots of those small particular um Times get lost. Those times when someone's like, right now, this is what I'm experiencing and I really need to talk to someone about that or I need to talk to someone who can kind of go, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know that one. Um, so, yes. So I, I'm all for there being more. <laughs> <laughs> You're so are we. <laughs> so are we. I, I mean, it's always I've said that I would love to see um, you know, pockets of recovery coaches in every state in Australia um, and definitely something that I think needs to be funded uh, under the Medicare scheme as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that this concept of teamwork is slowly growing in Australia. So I think that, you know, this idea, you know, say with the Eating Disorders Research Project mm. on the Sunshine Coast so that there's 
um, there's a dietitian and there's um, there's a therapist and then there's a, a GP and you know um, having a case conferencing kind so of item essential. number has been great um, and it's difficult because I think the resources are so thin on the ground in terms of you know how many hours people have gotten how busy people are um, and how stretched people can get um, but I think that if people can collaborate with each other and be working as a team, particularly in eating disorder, it's a fierce problem. And it is persistent and it is in people's ears 24-7. And so if you're just an individual therapist trying to work with someone and you see them once a week or once a fortnight, it's seriously a drop in the bucket. And so if you have a team... And this person that you're working with knows they have a whole team of people who are questioning, you know, this eating disorder. Um, then, and that that team is supporting each other, because I think that eating disorders and the idea that eating disorders are too hard, um, it's a really powerful idea. And if you've got a team of people working together, they support each other. They kind of, kind of go, oh yeah, well we had this great conversation the other day, and this is what came out of that. Um, so that makes a big difference and I think to have recovery coaches on that would be awesome. Yeah, I completely agree with you. How would you advise someone who's supporting um, a loved one through an eating disorder? What do you think are some of the best ways that they can support them? That's a big question, Millie. (laughs) Um, I think... Eating disorders tend to set people against each other. So um, one of the most important things, I I think, is that sense of standing with the person um, to then address the eating disorder rather than getting into some of the battles that that they can get into. Um, which is really hard because, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it's a parent's job to kind of continue to put food in front of someone, in front of their child who the eating disorder is saying don't eat and the parent's saying do eat. So there are lots of battles. But to remember that that's the eating disorder pushing their loved one around uh, rather than um, that that's their loved one not wanting to get well. Uh, so that sense of remembering... and. And making them aware of how eating disorders operate and how sneaky they are and how persistent they are and what kind of language they use um, so that they have that awareness of how they operate and that that's how it's operating in their loved one's life, Um, not that that's what their loved one actually wants, even if part of them is recruited into thinking that they want it. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And yeah, as you're right, education is key. And I know f- when when we saw Anne Epstein, it was just mum just used to write notes and notes and notes because yeah. it was giving her an understanding of what was going on internally for me. Yeah. Because as try as she might to understand it by asking me what's it saying to you, yeah. it was really hard for her to get her head around something that she'd never ever experienced in her life. Yeah, and so I think that to have that understanding that this is how it operates um, and it doesn't just do this to your loved one, you know. it and Because often people will say to me, like, how did you know it was saying that to me now? Yeah. And I'll be like, mm, 
it's fairly predictable. You know, it's like, you know, fairly, my goodness. Yeah, that's right. You know, sometimes they use quite bad language. Sometimes I can see parents' eyebrows raised if they're in a session. Like, that's predictable. Um, and it's done this before and I can see the look on your face when it starts talking to me. And I think then to have that made visible for parents as well. Yes. To kind of know that you might be having a conversation, you know, not parents, just partners. I work, you know, quite a bit with partners as well. So um, that while you're having this conversation, um, the person that you care about is probably having to have a whole other conversation at the same time that's going on in their head while they're having this conversation with you. So it's not necessarily that they're fighting back at you or that they hate you or that, that you know, any of the things that they're saying. Um, and this is exhausting. So that's the other thing I'd want them to understand, that process of having yeah. to engage with a person in front of you and this process in your head is exhausting. So exhausting. I vividly remember times where, you know, we would be driving, this is in the midst of, of me getting well, we'd be driving somewhere and maybe to the beach or something like that and mum's chatting away and and I would just out of the blue just scream at her, just stop, because I was in my head with these loudest voices going on, trying to figure out something. It was probably a calculation of how many calories I had, how many calories I was going to burn on the walk on the beach, and blah 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 blah. But I just everything was just too much, and she's chatting away about like, oh, and did you hear that so and so and I've got this other voice going. I'm just like, shut up. You know, and and what was really good was, she, I mean, she should really have kept just talking because it's like, well, no, I'm not going to let you be there in your brain on your own with those voices yeah. going down that rabbit hole because I couldn't concentrate on them. Yeah. I couldn't quite get there because she was in my ear about other things. Mm. And, and and but I just always rem- I remember that and just being so frustrated. Just let me be with my eating disorder and figure it out so that then I can be yeah. feel semi okay for you know all of three point five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but that sense of even making visible what's going on then in that yeah. internal conversation, yeah, then shifts your position on it. Mm. So to kind of then have to say, well, how come? What's going on? Exactly. What's going on in your head that you can't listen to me? Yeah. You know? Let me in. I want in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then you have to stop. You have to question. You have to say it. And then you have to choose. Is that the kind of conversation that I want to be having in my head right now? Is that okay for me? Yeah. Or do I want to be thinking about, hmm, I want to have the water's going to be warm. Exactly. Exactly. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to give to our listeners, especially those who are still battling it out with an eating disorder? The battle is worth it. Oh, 100% it is. That would be one of the things is that this is really hard and you can do it and it is so worth it. Yeah. You're right. And, and, and you're more than the eating disorder wants you to believe that you are. Yes. Mm. Yes. It's so true. Mm. It's so true because it wants you to believe that you are – you're nothing. You're not valued. You're not worthy. No. Um, that's as smart as around is to just chip away at you until yeah. you literally feel like you are just worth nothing. Yeah. And in fact, you are worth something. And all the, the little things that you're interested in actually count. You know? Yeah. Um, 
you know, the fact that you um, are interested in animals, that counts. You know, the fact that you answer your friend's phone calls, that counts. You know, the fact that you um, make your grandmother a cup of tea, that counts. You know, the fact that you um, are very interested in maths equations, that counts. Whatever it is. Yeah. This is something that is worthwhile. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all your words of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, you've just got you've had so many years working uh, in these spaces and I just really, really value what you bring to it, um, not only to your clients but also, you know, with your cards and, and all of that. It's I know that this episode is going to help a lot of people and also give people an insight into what other alternatives are out there if their current kind of modality of therapy isn't working. Hmm. Thanks, Millie. Been a pleasure. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? 